The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. The Pet Buzz gives you the latest 411 on everything pet related. Everything pet related. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic, Dynamic pet, pet Duo. Okay, greetings from the Pet Buzz Studios. How you doing, Dr. Fleck? Doing great. How about yourself today? Well, I'm doing good, but I got to tell you, you know, last week after we finished the show, I stopped by my friend Chuck and Annie's house. And before I got out of the car, it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. I saw, no, seriously, the biggest raccoon I've ever seen. He must have been 20 pounds. Mm. So, and as you know, raccoons are really nocturnal creatures. So when you see them during the day, they're either really desperately uh, in need of food mm-hmm. or they're sick mm-hmm. and perhaps have rabies. It freaked me out so bad, especially he crossed the street and went into a neighbor's yard. I later found out that the neighbor had big holes in his fence, which are now covered with a garbage can. Well, later in the week at night, around 10 o'clock, I went out to take out the garbage and I saw something skulking away Mm. and I realized it wasn't a cat. It was that giant raccoon. Supposedly there are two of the Mm. big ones. That's when I decided, obviously, other to call Florida Fish and Wildlife to get some advice about what to do with this raccoon, because there are, you know, there's the Creek behind my neighborhood. So a lot of the wildlife that comes into the neighborhood are kind of live back there or back there. But I also decided it's a really good idea uh, to have a little bit more nature segments, because when you're walking your dog or your cats out, they're coming in contact with all this nature, Mm -hmm. these animals. So I think it's a great idea. And while we love talking about dogs, cats, and of course, horses, We want you guys to learn more about the nature and the creatures in your neighborhood Mm -hmm. because they can have an effect on your dogs and cats. Absolutely. But now let's kick off the show with the weekly countdown. So in segment four, veterinarian Dr. Mike Schoonover of Oklahoma State University visits us on the pet buzz to discuss racing horse injuries. It's triple crown season. That's right. Three in seg three, veterinarian Dr. Sarah Guess a clinical assistant professor in small animal internal medicine at the College of Veterinary Medicine, Washington State University, joins us to discuss Cushing's disease. And in two, in this portion of the show, I talk about the celebrity pet buzz. And in Flex Facts, I discuss eye cleaning. And in segment one, watching and listening to the sights and sounds of the many different species of backyard birds is a captivating and rewarding way to get in touch with nature. And this was especially a great stress reducer for me during the pandemic and and still is. I really enjoy it. And it will continue to be, I'm sure. And joining us today to talk about backyard bird watching is Don Hewitt, the editor of Bird Watchers Digest and Watching Backyard Birds. Don, thank you for joining the Pet Buzz with us today. I'm thrilled to be here, Doc. Thank you so much. And Charlotte, thank you. Yeah. So tell us about what are the benefits of bird watching? Well, as you have already alluded to, um, it can be joyful and fun. Uh, it can be meditative, bringing a sense of peace and tranquility. And it is healthy escapism. It 
It allows us to take our minds off of our own problems and challenges. It connects us to nature and reminds us that we share this planet. It can contribute to citizen science. And so we learn more about birds and bird populations. You know, one of the things that I like about bird watching, it really kind of helped me learn more about my neighborhood and just the overall area and the community coupled with my master gardening. It kind of made me recognize I wanted to put certain plants in my yard. I like it too, because Dawn's tone just relaxes me. Yeah. (laughs) Well, good. Thank you. Where can I go to identify the birds in my yard or my area? Uh, Well, the first thing you should probably do is to get your hands on a field guide. I admit I'm old. Uh, And so I still use a paper book to learn the birds. And of course, you can Google the birds of Ohio or the birds of Florida or the common birds of Florida, and you'll get all sorts of information about what birds you're likely to see in your backyard. Um, If there's a nature center nearby, they may have uh, a checklist for the birds of your area. And certainly there are checklists for the birds of each state available on the Internet. Great. And we also have an uh, Audubon Society. We have mm. actually one in Manatee and one in uh, mm-hmm. here in Florida. So mm-hmm. uh, and one in Sarasota. So if you're lucky, there will be a group that you can go bird watching with once you get like get really into it. She's not old. She's young, mature. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Let you. Me you. Like, you never talk about a, bur- a lady's age or, or whatever. So I'm going to move on. Okay. So. Let's talk about what I can do to prepare my yard to attract birds, because I think that's a huge thing. Sure, absolutely it is. And if you want to see more birds, you can make your yard more welcoming to birds. If you consider what birds are accustomed to. Uh, Before the Europeans got here, where I live in Ohio, this was forest. It was all forest. And so if we can emulate nature and make our yards more like what the birds are accustomed to, Uh, they will feel more at home there. So in my yard, I've planted a lot of trees, native trees and shrubs and native plants. You can certainly provide bird feeders and bird baths, certainly in hot, uh, dry conditions, bird baths are gonna really draw in all sorts of birds. But also, you know, people think that uh, bird feeding is necessary to help the birds, but really, Bird feeding just brings the birds closer to us. The birds can find their own food in the wild. The real trick is to make your yard as natural as it can be for the birds. Okay. Makes sense. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, no, I think it's important. I mean, I I usually take the bird feeders and douse them in a bucket um, when I refill them. So, and now because there's so many back. And, And maybe after COVID, we're all a little bit more cognizant about hygiene. So yeah. maybe, maybe we'll all take care of it. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Really. Right. You had a next question. I do. I do. You know, a lot of pesticides, herbicides, maybe even fertilizer are used in the yard. Is that, is that bad to attract more birds? Well, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that baby birds almost exclusively eat insects. So if we're poisoning insects with pesticides, we're poisoning baby birds. And that's not something very many people want to do. Certainly they wouldn't do it intentionally. But parent birds feed their babies worms and grubs and caterpillars. And so we need to change our mindset about hating insects to welcoming insects, especially natural insects, naturally occurring native insects into our yard. I think you just have to be careful. I mean, I know, for example, I have a lot of uh, milk thistle 
and giant milkweed in my yard because I want to attract monarch butterflies. So, and the butterflies yeah. get really big. So I want them to survive because monarchs are in becoming an endangered species. You know, and so I it's think kind in, of a balance. in all things, you got to balance. Yeah, that's, that's just what I was going to say. Right. Okay, so what other do equipment do I need to bird watch? Well, the tools of the trade are usually considered a field guide and binoculars. But, you know, it depends how far you're going to take this hobby. You really don't need anything to enjoy the birds that visit your yard or your feeders. But you can spend thousands of dollars on a binocular or even more on a good spotting scope if you want to. And then people like me enjoy traveling for birds. I, I've been to many foreign countries just to see birds. Wow. Uh, and so it can become an expensive hobby. But really, you need a way to figure out what the birds are. And that's a field guide or a field guide app or Merlin. It's worth the investment to buy a good binocular. And don't forget, if you get good binoculars, you can see the football game better in the stadium. So that's another. Some people care about such things. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. He's only saying that because next his next question is, did you go to Ohio State, Don? (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone, that was a great interview with Don Hewitt, editor of Birdwatchers Digest and watching Backyard Birds. For more information, visit Birdwatchers digest.com you know i love backyard birding and so you know you'll have to keep up and just start getting active and start looking for those birds because you know they'll start visiting daily every single day with the right plants the feeders the bird baths and everything else sometimes we just become aware of something and we recognize how frequently it's there yeah i know so next up celebrity pet buzz and of course your favorite flex facts So let's take a commercial break and we'll be right back. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Know what? What? Since I got adopted, I've learned a lot about these humans. Uh, I know. I mean, check out these two. It's Flirt City over here. Yeah, I noticed that. It looks like my human is definitely into your human. Oh, look! She's getting his number. Nice. Your human's got some sweet moves. Takes after his dog. <laughs> oh, look, they're doing that thing where they put their arms around each other. She kicked up a leg. It's like in the movies. That's awesome. Looks like we're going to be hanging out a little bit more. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Hey, I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed, and research shows walking at least a half an hour every day can reduce a person's risk for heart disease and other serious illnesses. So regular walking is a great way to live a long and happy life. For most dogs, an hour of physical activity each day is necessary and will help them lead healthier lives free of disease. Walking a dog does not only have a physical benefit, there are plenty of psychological benefits for both the dog and the owner. There are so many smells, sights, and sounds in the outdoors that a dog is mentally stimulated every time he or she walks out the front door. Taking a dog on a walk will also help to solidify the strong bond between you and your animal. Give your dog some positive attention by doing what he or she loves. Take your dog out for a neighborhood walk today. I want to be a contender. I want a warm belly to sleep on. A big house. How do I look? Do do I look good? I want to play hard. My nails done once a month. 
I want. I want. I want a home. I just want a home. I want someone to love. Last year, more than 30,000 companion animals came to us without homes. 20,000 of them were felines. Let's make some homes. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pet Buzz. As you know, the show is hosted by the Dynamic Pet Duo. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Now what you guys love, celebrity pet news. You know, in March, amid a controversy and recriminations over misconduct and claims of offensive language by Sharon Osbourne, wife of Ozzy Osbourne, uh, well, on her on her show, she had some problems with some co-hosts, past and present, as well as this was another problem for her defense of British television host Pierce Morgan, who insulted Meghan Markle for her Oprah interview, kind of supposedly triggered racist accusations. Um, so obviously, Sharon kind of parted ways with the CBS talk show, The View. You heard about that. Mm-hmm. Just a more controversy that kind of goes with the whole gl- bit of controversy that goes on that just goes on and on and on with the whole Mm -hmm. topic of racism well Mm -hmm. anyway more bad luck has soon followed sharon osborne it seems that last friday the former talk show host revealed that her beloved scottish fold you know taylor swift also has scottish fold cats that she named miss olivia benson based on the um you know the series law and order Mm. Yeah, Scottish Foles are very popular. Anyway, so Sharon's cat Momo has been missing, was missing for about three days. And she went on Instagram and asked her fans and neighborhood followers to help her find Momo, who was last seen in the Los Angeles Largemont neighborhood. And if they saw a sighting of Momo to contact her while well, she shared photos of the cat and she said, I'm praying for my baby. Momo was safe and OK. Please repost if you can help me bring Momo home. And, you know, it's really interesting. And she further revealed that Momo was chipped, but wasn't wearing a collar. And she also know the cat is very friendly. But she said that Momo is not street smart, like many <laughs> indoor cats. OK, well, as a result of her loss. She still has good relations with her former colleagues, um, the talk co-host Amanda Klutz and Carrie Anna Inabe, as well as other pet loving fans, showed support with good wishes, prayers and encouragement that Sharon get Momo back. And believe it or not, later that night, Sharon wrote that Momo returned home. So perhaps her luck is changing. What a nice end to this. Yeah. Which Mm -hmm. I thought was really, really nice. Three days and the cat came back and Sharon's happy. And and it shows that she does have support with friends and family who care because people can like you always say, people can relate to several celebrities when they have the same problems or the same issues with their pets. That we do. As we do. Yeah, sure. And now what you guys have been waiting for. Welcome to Just the Facts. Just the Facts. Fact or fiction? Just the Facts, ma'am. You want answers. I want the truth. It's going to take long. You got the time. Flex Facts. So what are you going to talk about today, Dr. Flex? Cleaning dog's eyes. Okay, that's a good topic. Eyes are so important. You only got two of them. Don't want to lose those senses. They are also prone to attracting schmutz and getting dirty. Oh, absolutely. A dog puts his nose into everything from soil to garbage to food boils. Food boils? boils. Food bowls. <laughs> okay. 
And the faces of even shorter-haired breeds, shorter-nozzled breeds, can need routine grooming to keep them free from clump stains, dried food particles, and other blotches. Okay, so Dr. Fleck, let's move on and tell me, when is the ideal time to clean a dog's eye? The ideal time to wash your dog's face and eyes is at the bath time. Don't forget, sometimes you need to do it every day, though. Don't simply focus on his body. Make sure you cover all the ground from nose to tail. However, there are many times when a dog needs a quick touch up on his face and around his eyes. Okay, so what should a dog owner use in this particular case? Use soft, clean washcloths or sponges that are soft. Moisten the cloth or sponge with room temperature water. Use just enough water to get the job done. If you oversaturate the cloth or sponge, your dog will feel soggy and may balk at having his face clean. You want your dog to feel as comfortable as possible I, with yeah. these procedures. So what should you avoid doing? Paper towels and napkins. Oh, because they're harsh. You know, right? they're, they're available. So people think they can use mm -hmm. them when wet. These products can easily shred and disintegrate and they can be a little abrasive, too, by mm -hmm. the way, which will leave small bits of paper in your dog's coat when you're wiping. OK, so how much pressure? I mean, should we apply when cleaning around the eye? Because like you said, that I can get really gunky. Yeah, that's a quantitative issue. You want to be gentle but firm. Use only as much force as necessary to soften and dislodge the bits of food or dirt in your dog's facial fur. It's better to make several soft strokes than one or two strong, forceful strokes. And don't intimidate that with the swipes on the dog. Okay, talk a little bit about soaps and shampoos. Yeah, and you know, in most cases, casual facial grooming shouldn't require anything stronger than water mm -hmm. normally. Remember that you should never use soaps or shampoos that are made for humans. If water isn't doing the job, you can try a little dab or spray of waterless dog shampoo. Notice I said that, dog shampoo. Mm -hmm. These products are available at many pet shops and veterinary offices. You know, one of the things I always find out that people are always afraid to get those clumps of gunk out of the dog's eye. What do you suggest? Well, you've probably noticed those globs that can form around your dog's eyes, just like you're saying, mm -hmm. using a, a water moistened washcloth or sponge, very gently wipe the area around that eye to loosen and remove the dirt or gunk. Mm -hmm. Never wipe the eye itself and be sure to approach the area slowly so you don't startle your dog. Notice I said, don't wipe the eyeball yourself. Never use soap or shampoo near your dog's eyes because this may cause irritation or even damage the pooch's eye. Mm -hmm. Even if it's tearless shampoo, don't use it around the eye. And as I tell my clients, if you don't take that away, it'll dry up, attach to the skin. And when you do try to remove it, You'll be removing skin. Yeah. I, a lot of damaging. times you'll see some of these small eyes have like extensive pink around the corners, the inside corners of their eyes. Okay. Tear stains is a big problem. Big problem. Yeah. So tear talk stains, about tear, talk tear, about tear stains. Tear stains are dark, blotchy areas that form on the hair around the dog's eyes. And cats can get tear stains too. This discoloration is particularly obvious in light colored dogs. The stains are caused when the eye expresses an excessive amount of tears, which react with the bacteria in the hair. If the tear stains are a chronic problem with your pet, it may indicate that there is an underlying medical cause, such as infected tear ducts, maybe even anatomical. You should bring this to the attention of your veterinarian. 
If routine cleaning with a moist washcloth doesn't remove the stains, you can try solutions that are specifically made for this condition. You can find them on your vet, at your vet office or at the pet store shops. Lastly, be sure that you follow the directions and don't touch the eyeball. You know, I think that's really great. A lot of times we buy these products and we don't follow the instructions and it's really important. It's like with flea and tick products. You need to read whether you bought the package last month or the month before. It's always a good idea just to refresh your memory. Read the instructions on the back because you don't want to spend the money. And then, of course, do something incorrectly and then you're going to end up having a big vet bill and hurt your dog. What's the favorite phrase that people say? I know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. All the way to the veterinary office to treat the eyeball. Yeah, Come all on. the way to an empty bank account. Empty. Okay. Anything else, Dr. Fleck? That's all the Flex facts for the week. Yeah, that was a great segment. I'm glad we actually talked about that. I, I think too. it's really important. Too. It's something simple. It's something we deal with every day. Well, anyway, you guys need to stick around because more of the pet buzz very soon. Bet you can't wait for my likey of the week, as well as veterinarian Dr. Sarah Guest from Washington State talking about Cushing's disease. Stay tuned. Like I said, always more buzz coming up. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Hey, did you know 2.4 million loving cats and dogs in shelters and rescues need our help to find a home? Let's go to the shelterpetproject.org and meet a few who are in a shelter near you. Harlow. Ooh, she's one great listener who loves to hear all your stories. My kind of cat. Shrulo. Is a sweet, goofy boy who's eager to please. Sounds just like another dog I know. So go to the shelterpetproject.org, search your local shelters and rescues, and go for a cuddle with your next best friend. Adopt. How often should you bathe your pet? Well, I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed, and I'm asked that question often. How often you should wash your dog depends on a number of factors, including his health, breed, coat, and activity level, as well as where these activities are taking place. Dogs who spend days outside rolling in things are going to need a bath far more often than the ones who spend most of their time on the couch. Or you can always take the smell test. If your dog walked into the room and you can smell them, it's time for a bath. Make sure when it's time for a bath, you gather up all the supplies, including a non-slip mat and plenty of towels. Use shampoo formulated for dogs and turn your cell phone off to avoid distraction. And if you have a dog that hates getting a bath, smear some peanut butter on the bathtub wall and let him lick it off while you bathe him. Then he'll know bathing can really be a treat. So I just moved in with this family and it's embarrassing. The little one, he likes to go outside and crawl around in the giant litter box. I don't know what he's doing. I mean, I was born and I knew how to use the litter box. That's disgusting. I really hope he grows out of this for his sake. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. You know, you're listening to the best in pet talk radio. This is the pet buzz. That's the way it has to be because that's the way I like it. It's genius. I like it. I love it so much. I like it. It's to die for. I like it.
You know, I always like to tell you something good. Remember that song? Tell me something good. Remember? Well, this story is completely a wonder. This incident took place earlier in the month of South Africa. It seems that Byron and Melissa Theraran are lucky that their seven-year-old Staffordshire Bull Terrier, Jesse, was there to save the life of their 13-year-old Pomeranian, Chucky. So check this out. In harrowing footage caught on the video camera, Chucky falls in the pool as he's walking around the perimeter. (laughs) Okay, at first, no one is around to see him. After a few minutes, Jesse, the younger dog and the bigger dog, comes from the house and begins circling the pool and following Chucky is flailing in the water. Jesse begins to try to grab a hold of Chucky from the pool's edge and remove him from the water. Well, the video doesn't show Jesse's entire rescue. It took the bigger dog about 30 minutes to save the smaller dog. I mean, that's a long time. They're probably exhausted. Yeah, probably. The clip does show the moment that Jesse pulls her older sibling to safety with her teeth. It was only when the couple got home and found the pups covered in water did they check the security video to find out what happened. So I love that story. I do too. And I'm just curious, you guys at home, do you think your dog would try to save another dog, another dog sibling in your house? Well, if so, tell me something good. Tweet, post, or email us at team at the because we want to know. And there's a possibility we could talk about it next week. I bet you there's innumerable cases that it's happened. Sure, sure. And I love that. So that's why we always want to know what's going on at your house. That's really good. So here's the scoop. If your dog is drinking and urinating more than usual, it could be caused by a variety of reasons. One cause could be Cushing's disease. And our next guest is here to talk about this common disease, especially in dogs. Yes. And I'm happy to introduce veterinarian Dr. Sarah Guess, who is currently a clinical assistant professor in small animal internal medicine at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Washington State University. Dr. Guess, welcome to the Pet Buzz today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. So I'm curious because a lot of people talk about Cushing's disease. Tell us a little bit about that and what animals can get it. Cushing's disease is the collection of clinical signs that happens when there's too much steroid in the body and really any animal could get it. It's most common in dogs and the classic form of Cushing's disease that we think about is the dog form. Okay. So that means cats can get it. What about horses or other animals? Cats, horses, I think anybody who has an adrenal gland has the potential to get Cushing's disease, which would include all of our domestic pets. So what are the symptoms? Just in, in dogs. Yeah, in dogs, the main symptoms of Cushing's disease are increased urination, increased drinking, just like you said. We also see um, increased appetite and sometimes weight gain. In the later stages, we start to see some hair loss and maybe a sort of pot belly type appearance is what owners often describe to us when they're talking about a concern for Cushing's disease. Are any specific breeds of dogs likely to develop uh, Cushing's disease or some dogs, I guess, more prone than others? Interestingly, littler dogs tend to get one type of the disease and bigger dogs tend to get another type of the disease. Um, But the main breeds that we would think about would be miniature poodles are predisposed, as well as boxers and dachshunds. Those are kind of the big three that have been shown in the 
literature to be overrepresented for Cushing's disease. And um, some studies talk about little terriers as well, um, but those are kind of the main ones that would be predisposed or that would be overrepresented for it. Interesting. Yeah, very What Are there more than one type of Cushing's disease and are any of these similar to the Cushing disease in humans? There are kind of two main types of Cushing's disease. And one of them I think is kind of similar to the syndrome in humans. Um, the main types of Cushing's disease that we see in dogs, excluding dogs that are taking oral steroids. So if we keep those out of it, the too much steroid production by the body would either be from the adrenal gland itself, where the adrenal gland um, develops a tumor, either benign or malignant, and starts producing a bunch of steroid and causing those clinical signs. Or um, there's a small spot in the brain called a microadenoma that produces too much of a product that causes the adrenal glands to secrete this excess steroid. So it's either coming from the adrenal gland itself or from a little spot in the brain that is doing that. And it's pretty interesting that dogs can get either of those, but the brain form is more common. And I think it's also more common in humans. Okay. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with veterinarian Dr. Sarah Guest from the College of Veterinary Medicine at Washington State University about Cushing's disease. So I'm just curious, how is it diagnosed? How is this disease diagnosed? Cushing's disease is one of my most favorite diseases to work with because it's diagnosed in three main stages. The first is that the veterinarian needs to have a clinical suspicion for the disease, meaning that the patient has clinical signs compatible with Cushing's disease, that increased drinking and urination is are kind of the main ones that we see. The second step in diagnosis of Cushing's disease is to demonstrate that there's actually too much steroid hormone in the body that's happening. And then the third step would be to find out where that steroid hormone is coming from. Is it coming from the adrenal gland itself or is it coming from somewhere in the brain? And um, those three steps can sometimes take a few days to diagnose and work through, but it's really important to get all of those squared away so we know how to fix it. You know, as a practitioner, I, I need to ask you this question, and that is, and let the listening audience understand this too, isn't it uh, quite frequently that lots of times with overuse of, of steroids, so maybe with allergies and skin conditions, that, that, the, that a lot of the patients that do develop Cushing's could develop this over a long time? treatment protocol over periods of years with, with say, corticosteroids? Absolutely. Pets that are taking oral steroids for long periods of time can get Cushing's disease where they develop these clinical signs. And so, like you said, as a practitioner, it's something we try to be aware of. I warn them about those side effects. Um, and we, at the end of the day, just try to do the best thing for the pet to alleviate the signs and balance those Cushing symptoms that might come with using um, steroids for a long period of time. So is there some value in using some of the alternative medications that are now present for, say, skin issues, skin allergies, particularly for the Cushing's disease problem? I would say so. And I'm definitely a big advocate for the multimodal approach and sort of moving our knowledge forward with some of the newer medications that are out for for skin and allergies and things like that, that might yield a better result for the patient without causing all those side effects that we would sometimes see with steroids. What are some of the treatments? Obviously, what type of medication and are they really costly? Yeah, that's a great question. The treatments are for Cushing's disease are dependent on where the steroid is coming from. So is it the adrenal gland that's producing too much steroid or is it this problem in the brain? 
And there are sort of two main treatments that we can think about. One would be medical management. So uh, an oral pill. Um, the main two are called trilostane and mitotane. And those are prescribed by veterinarians. Trilostane, depending on the size of the dog, as far as cost, maybe anywhere from $50 a month for a very, very small dog to a few hundred dollars a month for a larger size dog. And then the second main treatment option that we have would be surgery to either remove the adrenal gland or some specialty centers can actually go in and do brain surgery that is um, in many cases curative for uh, Cushing's disease and actually remove or alter the part in the brain that's causing the steroid production to happen. Well, I hope your students watch and listen to this. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on the Pet Buzz today. What a great interview, and we really do want you back. Yeah, absolutely. I was so pleased to be here. Call me anytime. So for more information about veterinarian Dr. Sarah Guest, vetmed.wsu.edu. There you I'm go. I'm going to say it one more time, vetmed.wsu.edu. So you guys, we want you to stick around because we're going to find out what country just created a national holiday for their native dogs and... What are common injuries for horse races? I mean, for racing horses. (laughs) Remember, it's triple crown season. We'll be back in a buzzworthy moment. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Hi, I'm Brad Garrett. The investigation of the Humane Society of the United States exposed the link between pet stores and puppy mills. Large puppy mill operations were busted in Maine, Oklahoma, Texas, and Virginia. Bottom line, puppy mills are cruel and their puppies are often sick. So do yourself a favor and go to your local shelter for your next dog. You'll get an inoculated, already fixed dog for almost nothing. So you'll not only save some money, but you'll also save a life. I'm pet expert Charlotte Reed, and I want to remind you how important it is to protect your pet against fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes with preventative tablets and topicals. By giving your dogs and cats preventative meds throughout the year, you are protecting your pet from Lyme disease, heartworm, flea allergies, worms, and more, causing unwanted and costly vet bills. Most importantly, these parasites can infiltrate your home, causing you and your family's health to be compromised. Remember, healthy pet healthy you sure i'm a little rough and tough somebody's got to me i like the outdoors camping boating riding in your truck with my head out the window yeah i'll poop outside doesn't everyone a person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet be that person adopt Well, I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We love to say it all the time. We're urban. Suburban. And and country. country. I want to let you guys know, we love hearing from you, especially when you write us in with questions. So today we're going to focus in on our cat lovers. So I want you to know we heard you, cat lovers, and we are going to be answering your questions questions and we reached out to our favorite cat expert our favorite cat expert. our favorite yes uh-huh. and joining us today is certified cat behaviorist and author beth edelman beth is a regular guest on the pet buzz and we are always happy to have her share her feline insights 
Beth, welcome back to the Pet Buzz. Thank you so much. It's so nice to see you both. So, Beth, we collected all these questions from our cat lovers, right? Yes, yes. And we thought you would be the best person to answer them. Better than us. Better than us. <laughs> okay, so what's the first question? Well, the first question, first one, was Melissa from Florida. She posed this question. What does it mean if my cat bites me while I'm petting it? Well, it means your cat's had enough. Um, cats, cats have proximity issues. They do. So... They're going from this, I love this, I love this, I love this, and suddenly, <laughs> I hate this, right? They love being petted, and then suddenly they're overloaded. So what you need to do is when you're watching your pet, don't be watching TV or talking on the phone or talking to a friend or anything else at the same time. So when you're petting, pay attention. And you're always going to see, if you pay attention, you're going to see a little bit of a signal before you get to the bite. It might be something really obvious, like a sound or the tail starts thumping or the ear positions change, but it might be really subtle too, like a little tightening of the neck muscles or a ripple of the skin, or sometimes the cat's whiskers come forward. So it could be really subtle. Body language is key. So you want to look at that body language. You see any change in the body language, even something really small, just stop. Just take your hands away. Now we got you covered. Now you know what to do. Yes. Okay. So John from Minnesota wrote that he recently heard that cats should be fed once a day. What's that all about? So that was a study that came out. And the purpose of that study was to find out what kind of diet would help cats to lose weight in the most effective way. That was the only purpose of that study. And they did find that once a day feeding was very helpful in that. And they they actually looked into that because studies have been done on people losing weight that have also found that eating one meal a day can be helpful. But we all know that there's a name for that, which is fad diet, okay? And fad diets, while they can be very effective in losing weight, are not very helpful for keeping us happy and satisfied. And so cat behaviorists and veterinary behaviorists have looked at that study and said, while that study may be effective for helping cats to lose weight, it's not effective in the long run for keeping cats behaviorally healthy and sound. And so we still um, all agree that the best and most natural way to feed cats is several small meals a day. If you want your cat to lose weight, then several smaller meals a day and also increased exercise. So that's the same way that we lose weight and keep it off. Eat a little less, move a little more. Eat a little less, Dr. Fleck. You move tons, so you don't need to move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, you had a last question. I do. Yeah, Justin from California, he wants to know a good question. The adoption time during COVID, was there as many cats as dogs? Oh, yeah. See, I mean, we all read about the dogs, but the truth is that a lot of cats have been adopted as well. Um, shelters across the country have been reporting that they have no cats and no dogs available for adoption, which is a good thing. I mean, this is what we're all hoping for, right? Is that every cat and dog gets a home. I actually foster it here in New York where I live and we've been bringing cats up. I foster with a cats only group. We've been bringing cats up from the South where they do still have cats available for adoption and we, but not enough homes. We've been bringing cats up from the South um, and we're bringing up between 40 and 60 cats a month and they're all getting adopted within two months. I will just say that, that, you know, if you're home from COVID now and you think, oh, I'd love to have a cat or dog now, 
but I'm not sure when I go back to work that it would work. It's good that you're thinking that, first of all. And second of all, then think about fostering because that's a short-term commitment. If you think, oh, I'd like to have a dog or a cat in my house just for now, just for a while. Think about fostering. If you fall in love, you can adopt the pet you fostered. Yeah. And if you fall in love, but not into commitment, (laughs) they'll be adopted. Well, everyone, that was certified cat behaviorist Beth Edelman, good friend of the show. Always have fun to have her. Great advice. And she's funny, too. (laughs) Funny, funny, Beth. Okay. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. Okay, Dr. Fleck, as you know, it's that time. Oh, what do you mean it's that time? It's that time. We got to wrap the show. Oh, my gosh. But before we go, we want to give you a preview of next week's show. So next week, we're going to talk about dog health. Oh, there's always more dog health oh, topics. Beth would love this. Vegan cat diets. V- I know. Vegan cat diets. New study. And more of our favorite pet products. Got a, we got to love. We love those pet products. There's so many of them. And actually, you know, Global Pet Expos come into town. It's virtual. That's right. Yeah. That's anyway, right. Uh, and we got to thank our guests. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Alex Benjamin, Dr. Tina Wismer. And Beth Edelman. And the great Beth Edelman. And the great Beth Edelman. And of course, we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton EpiPet, making better skin, coat, and ear care products for healthier pets, everyone. We encourage you to use that code, the Pet Buzz, because you're going to get 25% off on the great sprays, shampoos, uh, supplements, and of course, sunscreen. Sunscreen coming up. Yeah. And if you have any questions, write to us at Team at thepetbuzz.com. And of course, we'll cover it on next week's show. Yes, we will. And if you've missed any portion of the show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channels. You know, Google Play, SoundCloud, iTunes, and listen to the linked podcast on Monday morning. But most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Goodbye. listening to the pet buzz with pet trendologist charlotte reed and veterinarian dr michael fleck i'm pet trendologist charlotte reed with a healthy pet healthy you tip there are many reasons that you might have to shelter at home with your pets such as unsafe air quality dangerous roads and or high winds and flying debris but you have to be prepared so here are some suggestions Make sure your pet's inside. If it's unsafe for you to be outside, it's unsafe for him too. Know the location of your pet's emergency go bag. It should have already been stocked with extra food, water, first aid kit, and other essentials your pet needs. Take your pet with you to a room that's safe. The room's location is based on whether you are sheltering from a hurricane, earthquake, tornado, flood, or blizzard. If there's a wildfire, it's best to take your pet and leave the premises immediately. Bring a battery-operated radio to ensure that you can get updates from emergency officials, even if the power goes out and your phone or internet connection or down. If time allows, move your pet's favorite bed or blanket to your safe room so that you can make him as comfortable as possible until the threat passes. 
since pets can get restless if cooped up inside in one room, bring items to keep them engaged, such as toys, games, and learning activities. Make sure your pet has a place to relieve himself. Keeping puppy pee pads on hand can be useful for this purpose, as can potty training your dog to go indoors. Have a few disposable litter boxes for cats, too. Make sure to have cleaning supplies on hand in case of an accident. Keep your pet away from the windows. Debris may be flying around during a storm due to high winds. In fact, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention says that flying debris is the most common cause of injury during a hurricane. Be ready for you and your pet to leave at a moment's notice. Keep your dog's leash, crate, or carrier and any necessarily travel gear near the exit. For cats, have a carrier or pop-up shelter and other essentials. Once gone, you can refer to your emergency evacuation plan. You know, pets know when there's panic in the air, so try to remain as calm as possible. This is pet trendologist Charlotte Reed with a healthy pet, healthy you tip. Stay safe. Hey, I'm petrinologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We are urban, suburban, and, and country. country. And now, pet buzz news from around the globe. So, hey, let's start this segment by discussing how people spend their time and their money. It just goes to show you what some countries consider a priority. So, Turkmenistan celebrated the first national holiday in honor of its native dog breed, the alibi. And this happened last Sunday. It's the alibi is a variety of Central Asian shepherd dog. The large stocky breed is known as the wolf crusher for its prowess in guarding sheep and goats and is also used to guard homes. Dogs are considered part of the Turkmenistan national heritage and are widely used by many of the traditional herders among its population of 6 million. You know, as a result, the dog is a symbol of national pride in a very self-isolated, self-secluded nation. So last year, its dog-loving president, Gurban Guli, Berdaimukahamadov, <laughs> no, that was a hard one, unveiled a huge golden statue of the dog in the middle of the capital city. Can you imagine a huge golden? And this dog is huge. We're going to make sure we put pictures on our social media channels. Actually, the president even wrote a book about the dog breed hmm. and a poem about the alibi dog. And check this one out. You'll know a little bit more about his politics when I tell you who he gifted with one of these dog breeds. Guess who? Vladimir Putin. Oh, wow. Yeah. He gave the Russian president a puppy for his birthday back in 2017. This year, the last Sunday, the celebrations included a best of breed contest in which the entrants participated in a contest and they wore national dress and paraded their dogs on a colorful stage, probably similar to like a dog show. It would have been a wonderful. Yeah. Event. Well, the president's son awarded the prize in his father's name during the festivities. And although the breed has been celebrated with a national holiday, see, this is where the kicker is the gold statues, the gift of Putin. Their economy is really in the grip of an economic crisis. <laughs> but the one good thing that we could say is that the folks there must love dogs. Cross the board. Well, seems as if our next guest is on the line. You know, Triple Crown season is upon us. And that's when really most people watch horse racing. I mean, it's a huge sport, but probably the only time of the year that they do watch it. 
Yeah, well, so despite its popularity, you know, horse racing is a dangerous sport, especially for jockeys mm-hmm. and for horses. And our next guest is going to talk just about that topic. So at the Pet Buzz, we welcome veterinarian Dr. Mike Schoonover, who is Associate Professor of Equine Surgery at the College of Veterinary Medicine, Oklahoma State University. He is a diplomat of both the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, large animal specialty, and the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation, equine specialty. So Dr. Schoonover, welcome to the Pet Plus. We are really glad to have you here with us today. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Okay, talk to us about the musculoskeletal system of horses and what's its purpose? Well, the musculoskeletal system of any animal consists of the bones, tendons, ligaments, and joints. And the purpose is to really provide protection to the internal organs and also um, make it where animals can move around and and, um, contribute to the structure that the animal has. Now, one of the reasons that we had you here is because we we do follow the Triple Crown and we've seen some accidents on tracks around the country. So we kind of wanted to know what are some of the common racehorse injuries that we've either seen or heard about or. Sure. I mean, there, there are a lot of, um, of injuries in racehorses and a lot of them aren't uh, really different from other um, species of animals. Human a- uh, athletes um, have similar injuries. Um, but we t- what we tend to see in horses um, when they're going down the track at a high rate of speed are the catastrophic injuries. So fractures of the bones, complete fractures of the bones. Sometimes they can have complete um, tendon or ligament failure. Um, but some other you know, minor or less severe injuries can be minor uh, bone chips that occur in joints, minor tendon sprains, things like that. So do many of these injuries happen when horses get bumped or tangled in traffic or trip or take a bad step when racing or are, are some of the injuries a side effect of training? Rarely does an injury actually happen or, or at least initial start of the injury doesn't happen in the race that the animal shows a problem. Most of the injuries that we see are repetitive stress type injuries. So repetitive training ligaments and and tendons and bones will get weaker over time with that training. And if they're not given enough rest to um, recuperate and for those tissues to remodel, um, then that, yeah, that kind of continual use can lead to injury. So my question has to do with track surface. So I guess in a lot of these injuries, like we've seen at Santa Ana, because, um, you know, we had Mickey on, uh, I think it was last year, and he talked about track service. Can track service be a contributing factor to equine injuries? Certainly. Um, and if we knew, you know, if we had all the answers and knew the perfect surface to, to race horses on, that's what, every, that's what every track would have. But, you know, when we start having a surface that's really firm and not very deep, um, the impact of that is is very um, stressful for the tendons and ligaments and bones of the horse. If we have a, a racing surface that's really deep, um, well, then that can have a negative effect on the soft tissues um, of the limbs as well. So, you know, trying to find that perfect track surface, you know, even with um, with all the, the research that's been done, you know, we still don't know what exactly is the perfect surface to minimize injury. We see so many of these injuries happening at Santa Ana. That wasn't all injuries. I think some of it was infectious disease, too, I believe. Well, 
you know, recently, obviously, there's been a lot of news publicity about these about injuries. But um, looking at the numbers, if you if you go back, there's really not an increase in number of of catastrophic injuries that are happening on racetracks on a on a um, kind of a year to year basis. Now, one year there may be a few more. The next year there may not be quite as many. But these injuries are getting a lot more publicity, and so people know about them more so. If they happen during a race, people know about them. If they happen during training, then they may not necessarily hear about them. Sounds like the conditions of any athlete, doesn't it? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was doing some research and it said about two horses probably die on racetracks more or less a day. And then it said, but like you said, the, the numbers are going down from a few years ago. There are not as many deaths and injuries as there were like maybe 10 years ago. Well, you know, I think we need to point out, too, that we're talking about the Triple Crown and racing horses, but there's barrel racing horses, there's jumping horses, there's there's just trail riding horses. They all can get injured, can't they? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we see, um, you know, all shapes and sizes of horses, all disciplines of horses, and there are some injuries that are specific to certain disciplines. Um, but ultimately, a horse is a horse, and they all can have very similar injuries, irregardless of what their discipline is. Which kind of brings me up to the, probably our last question about is people working with these horses, trainers working with horses. How can a lot of these injuries and deaths be prevented? Well, I mean, that, that goes back to conditioning of any athlete, you know, making sure that athlete is fit and, and ready for the race. And just, you know, making sure there's there's no surprises for the horse um, when it comes to what it's at being asked to do from a performance standpoint. Well, Dr. Schoonover, thank you so much for being with us today. That's really no, enlightening. for enlightening us. Yeah, it's really enlightening on. for us on, on so much of this, not just for the race horses, but for the other pleasure horses that people work with. Thank you so much. Thank you guys very much for having me and uh, have a great rest of the week. To learn more about Dr. Schoonover and horse injuries, visit vetmed.okstate.edu. But you know what time it is, Dr. Fleck. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. You know what time it is, Dr. Fleck. No. It's time to wrap the show. No. Of no, course. And no, I know this was a great no. show. But before we leave, we want to give you a preview of next week's show. So next week, we're going to talk about Addison's disease mm -hmm. and the second jewel of the Triple Crown, the Preakness. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're going to talk about more about cat health because cats have health problems, too. And Dr. Fleck, I'm going to ask you to thank our guests. Our special thanks for the guests that joined us this week. Don Hewitt, Dr. Sarah Guest. And Dr. Mike Schoonover. Of course, we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin, coat, and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. And if you have any questions, write to us at Team at the Pet Buzz. Yeah. And if you've missed any portion of the show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channels and listen to the Link podcast on Monday morning. And always remember, it's most importantly that we're here each week. To help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. Tune in each week for the latest 411 on everything pet related. www.thepetbuzz.com. Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.